I'm just wondering why we use the term oligarch when we have plenty of billionaires here in our own country. I feel like the term does a lot of work when it comes to otherizing and exoticizing what really is just a typically capitalist formulation. More than 1,000 Russians and their families have been hit with economic sanctions since Russia invaded Ukraine. It's part of an orchestrated campaign led by the United States, the United Kingdom, and the European Union to strip the finances of those with ties to the Kremlin. When you think of a Russian oligarch, images of a millionaire on a yacht in Miami or in a penthouse in London may come to mind, but the story behind these Russian elites and their relationship with President Vladimir Putin is a bit more complicated than that. Coming up, who are the Russian oligarchs and exactly what kind of power do they wield in Russia? I'm Jen White. You're listening to the 1A Podcast, where we get to the heart of the story. A reminder to have your questions answered on future topics or just to let us know what you think. Tweet us at 1A. We're discussing Russian oligarchs. Here to help kick off the conversation is Ben Judah. He's a senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Europe Center and a foreign policy writer based in New York. Ben, thanks for being here. Thank you so much for having me on the show. Also with us is Henry Foy. He's the European diplomatic correspondent for the Financial Times. He was previously the Moscow bureau chief. Henry, welcome. Thank you so much, Jen. Henry, let's just start with a basic definition. How would you define a Russian oligarch? Well, I mean, the term Russian oligarch has gone through so many different changes uh, over the last thir- uh, 30 years or so. And, but the, the generic idea of what people think about has, has really stayed static. I mean, the original oligarchs uh, in the 90s, when Russia really did have an, an oligarchic capitalism in a classical sense, these were seven bankers, effectively, who owned uh, big media assets and some energy assets. The uh, president, um, Boris Yeltsin, was was weak, heading for political defeat in the 1996 election. The state was effectively broke. And these seven bankers came in with bags of money and said, look, you give us the keys to the castle, we'll get you re-elected, and we will then be in charge of policymaking. And, and effectively, the, the, the second Yeltsin government was was very well controlled by these seven men. There were, there were a few others who came in and out, but there was originally these, these seven to begin with. Putin, when President Putin came in, he broke that system. Uh, of those seven, one was arrested and sent into a long, long period of arrest inside Russia. Three were exiled and three were effectively tamed. And the system that Putin brought in was much more of a crony capitalism where friends of the president were given power, given money, given access to natural resources. And they were considered oligarchs by, by Western observers, that the, the term stuck, but they were from a very different background, a very different concept of power than the original oligarchs that we knew. Back then, those oligarchs told the presidency, told the Kremlin effectively what to do. They, they had huge amounts of influence. Under Putin, however, it was the other way around. The oligarchs did uh, the bidding of Putin. So it's incredibly important to make sure we know the difference between these two, even though they were both hugely wealthy, uh, and 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 uh, prominent in in Russian business, but the 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 relationship with the Kremlin in terms of power was very very different. Ben, why have so many Russian oligarchs left the country for cities like London and Milan? I think it's again very important to draw a distinction between that earlier generation of oligarchs and the people who now are the sort of leading billionaires. Uh, in Russia, what I like to call the Putin gargs, because their position is um, 
dependent on Putin, not the other way around. Several prominent individuals uh, from that first generation of oligarchy began to leave the country in the sort of early 2000s after political conditions began to worsen for them in Russia. And there were various reasons for this. Some of them felt that this was a chance for them to expand their business empires abroad. Some of them felt that conditions were kind of worsening in Russia and they could eventually find themselves in a tricky or a sticky situation. And it was beneficial for them to uh, leave the country because of long-term security or maybe hedge against things going wrong in Russia. And some of them may have had a relationship with Putin encouraging them to kind of go abroad and develop assets abroad and to really try and integrate themselves with, um, you know, sort of global capitalist uh, elites and acquire assets uh, abroad. It's probably, for most of them, a combination of all three which led them to... uh, stake out these uh, initiatives abroad. Henry, during your time as the Moscow bureau chief for the Financial Times, you spoke with several Russian oligarchs who are being targeted with financial sanctions now. That includes Igor Sechin, who was once Vladimir Putin's secretary and is now the head of the oil giant Rosneft. How did Sechin become such a powerful figure? Well, Sechin's a great example of somebody who now is referred to as an oligarch. He's not uh, independently wealthy to the to the extent of somebody like Abramovich. He's not a man who owns huge amounts of assets uh, through corporations. He is a functionary. He he runs an oil company, and yes, he makes a huge amount of money on the side. We assume from the from the lavish yachts that he that he's able to purchase for him and his family members. We have to assume that he's making more money than just his official salary. But effectively, Sechin is, I think, the best example of what what Ben is referred to here as the Putin gags. He is. A man who, like Mr. Putin, came up through the KGB, uh, came up through military intelligence, uh, worked in the St. Petersburg mayor's office with Vladimir Putin when Vladimir Putin first went into politics in in Petersburg, and, and effectively, uh, there, there, I mean, there's there's footage of this. He was literally Putin's bag carrier uh, for a time, and when Putin uh, became president and shifted to the Kremlin, he brought. Uh, Mr. Sechin with him to Moscow. He'd served in a number of roles. He served as a deputy prime minister. He served as energy minister. But it was really this promotion um, uh, to to run Rosneft, the, the, the state-owned oil giant, the biggest oil producer and oil exporter in Russia that sort of marked him out as the, ma- the man Putin could trust. And he's one of the men that we, we know still talks to, to Vladimir Putin as others have fallen by the wayside uh, and lost their access. Sechin still has, still has uh, the president's ear. And he's a man who, because of his military background, because of his Lenin, uh, his St. Petersburg background, Putin trusts. And that's really, really key because in this situation now where we're talking about oligarchs in terms of not just their, not just the money they have, but the access to power they have, he's somebody that, that, that has stood the test of time, if you like, through the last couple of decades as that term of oligarch has shifted. Uh, he's somebody who definitely still has influence over Vladimir Putin. And I think when you look at the sanctions coming out now, he's somebody who the West has targeted and with, with purpose. Ben, I, I want to go to this tweet we got from Eric, who says, do Russian oligarchs have the power to remove Russian presidents with, ex- with extreme prejudice when the actions of those presidents cost them their wealth? But what I'm hearing from you is that the power dynamic between uh, Russia's leader and the oligarch class has, has shifted quite a bit. So I think it's very important to remember that this political system around Vladimir Putin has been going on for a very long time, like almost 23 years, and it's gone through various uh, iterations. Putin 
assumes power in a failing democracy as initially a sort of populist strongman, maybe not too dissimilar from type Erdogan in Turkey. It then evolves into an authoritarian regime where elections are kind of fully rigged, television is brought under his propagandistic uh, control, where oligarchs that challenge him are broken or tamed. And then it remained for quite a long time what we could call a regime. And by that I mean it's a political system where there are individuals, strong ministers, bureaucratic interests, a few so-called oligarchs or Putin-garchs, as I like to refer to them as, who could negotiate with Putin or put a bit of pressure on him or be involved in discussions. And if we want to see what the regime used to work like, we can look at how the decision was taken to uh, annex Crimea in 2014. That's the first military intervention that Putin launches in uh, Ukraine. So in 2014, Putin gathered those he referred to as his colleagues to the Kremlin to discuss uh, how to respond to the overthrow of the pro-Russian leader Viktor Yanukovych in Kiev. And you know, he said that they discussed the whole night the pros and cons of uh, taking uh, action in Ukraine. They looked at opinion polls about whether or not it would be popular with the Russian public to uh, annex uh, Crimea. And then they collectively took the decision to act. So that's a regime. It might be around a single strongman figure, but people are making inputs there. And then... Since then, there's been an evolution into what political scientists would call a personalistic dictatorship, where decisions are more and more and more taken by one man alone. And in contrast to that night in 2014, we see that this now sort of historic uh, session that Putin hosted for the Russian National Security uh, Council in the Kremlin, where a lot of the same people who were there in 2014 were simply gathered around him and asked to give advice on whether whether or not to recognise the uh, independence of the puppet republics in Donetsk and Luhansk, which was understood even at the time as being the beginning of hostilities and conflict with Ukraine. These individuals were looked frightened, scared. Uh, Some of them uh, visibly didn't want to be there. They were then asked to give their advice. Putin took no interest in what they had to say. One of them, Sergei Nerishkin, the head of Russian foreign intelligence, was so frightened by Putin's response to him, he forgot the topic being discussed and said he was ready to welcome the uh, republics into uh, Russia, only to be humiliated further by Vladimir Putin. We're discussing the Russian oligarchs being targeted with economic sanctions. We'll be back with more from you and our guests in just a moment. Remember, to join future conversations, just download our 1A Vox Pop app and leave us a voicemail. Now let's get back to our conversation about Russian oligarchs, the elite class, being targeted with economic sanctions for their ties to the Kremlin. Henry, the U.S. is offering millions in cash incentives to whistleblowers who come forward with information about Russian oligarchs' assets. What risks are involved for people willing to speak out, given the oligarchs' deep ties to the Kremlin? Uh, I, I mean, I think that the risks for Americans in America is, is very low. I, I think the risk that there are certainly are risks for uh, speaking out against Russians in Russia, but I don't think people should feel particularly alarmed doing that. I think it's a, a, a 
But I think what it does speak to is the difficulty sometimes in tracking the assets that, that belong to some of these individuals that, that have been named. Um, we've seen reports already that in, in the, just in the, in the 24, 36 hours after um, some of these gentlemen uh, were named on sanctions list by the US, by the EU, by the UK and other countries, they'd already signed off uh, trades, they'd sold assets, they'd moved. Uh, physical assets that can be moved, such as yachts, to other territories. I mean, it, it is a, it is really is a game of, of cat and mouse with with some of these gentlemen, especially because large numbers hold their wealth in shell companies, through through family members, through 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 people who are unrelated to them, so-called custodial ownerships. This has been going on for a long time, and let's face it, a lot of these oligarchs have had a long time to prepare. Uh, the first sanctions that came in after the the Russian annexation of Crimea in 2014, which Ben referred to. Earlier, that brought in a wave of sanctions. A lot of people, a lot of people that, and indeed oligarchs that I met and interviewed in Moscow who weren't sanctioned, were already taking steps to make sure that if it did come to it, if they were named, their businesses would be protected. So the, the fact that governments are turning to whistleblowers, they're asking people for help, is, is a sign that, that there is a struggle on here to, uh, to, to get these assets back. Naming these men and, and saying that their assets are frozen is really just the first step. Attorney General Merrick Garland, along with Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen, recently announced a multilateral task force called Russian Elites, Proxies, and Oligarchs, or Repo. And the group includes representatives from Australia and Canada, Germany, France, Italy, Japan, and the UK. And it's an extension of the Klepto Capture Task Force started by the Justice Department two weeks ago. Here's Garland describing the goals of the force. The United States has imposed sweeping economic countermeasures in response to Russia's unprovoked military invasion of Ukraine. The Justice Department will use all of its authorities to seize the assets of individuals and entities who violate these sanctions. We will leave no stone unturned in our efforts to investigate, arrest, and prosecute those whose criminal acts enable the Russian government to continue this unjust war. Again, that was Attorney General Merrick Garland. Ben, what is the end goal for the U.S. and European leaders in sanctioning Russian oligarchs, especially when you think about the shift in in the power dynamic between these oligarchs, or as you call them, uh, putigarchs, and Vladimir Putin? So the end goal is to disrupt, destabilize, and undermine Russia's immediate war effort in Ukraine. It's to raise the domestic political costs inside the Kremlin in terms of Putin's political system so that he slows down and comes to the table to negotiate. The long-term aims do appear to be to really begin to kind of throw sand into the um, the gears of how this system has worked with the hope of beginning a process of undermining Putin's firm grip on power. We got this email from Brian who asks, what international legal implications will seizing these oligarchs' property set in terms of international relations? Henry, your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, it's a tough one. There's, there's, been, there's been groups calling for these assets to be immediately liquidated and for those funds to be moved uh, to the Ukraine uh, government in some kind, through, through aid, through refugee support, through, through, through arms. Your, your previous guest was talking about uh, a variation on that theme. The problem is, of course, sanctions by, by their legal 
definition have to be liftable. They have to be uh, um, uh, the assets or the or the the punishments that are brought in by sanctions have to be reversible to encourage good behavior. That's the whole point of sanctions. If people uh, uh, stop doing the bad thing that you want them to stop, you're supposed to then lift the sanctions. And there have been examples in the past of countries doing that uh, uh, with relation to, to Russia and to other countries. Now, if you sell everybody's assets, it then is very difficult to then lift those sanctions later and to say, well, well, sorry, but uh, the yacht you used to own or the house you used to own in London, we've, we've liquidated and we can't give it back to you even though your government has effectively done what we asked you to do. Now, I'm not prejudicing this. I'm not saying that, that the Russian government will indeed do what the American, US, uh, UK and, and EU governments are asking, but you have to have that there in a legal sense. And the implications are enormous if you start seizing assets, selling them off and saying, we now own this without convictions. And that's the key thing here. You need to have a conviction uh, in, in, most, in, most, in most countries with the rule of law to start stripping people of assets. Freezing is very different to confiscating and liquidating. And, and the line has not been crossed yet. You've seen the, the governments of, of the G7 countries freeze the assets of the Russian central bank. That was a massive move, effectively saying to Russia, the money you think you have saved up, well, half of it has just disappeared. We've just seized it because you held it in our bank accounts. If that money were to be liquidated, given to somebody else, that's crossing a Rubicon. That's effectively saying, we are taking the money away that's in your bank account and we're going to give it to somebody else. That, For that, you need a conviction. You would need the, the sense that the Russian government has committed something that it cannot step back from and that the, the US, EU, uh, Japanese, G7 governments decide that that's, that's a line worth crossing. But we're not there yet. Well, here's another email we got from Jade who asks, are sanctions targeting oligarchs, specifically the seizure of their overseas-based assets, substantively effective, or are sanctions supposed to be more symbolic in nature? I'd love to hear from both of you on this, Ben. I think that there was a hope going into this in U.S. government circles that the threat of sanctions of such severity would have a dissuasive effect on the circle around Putin, that they could put pressure on him to seek a negotiated settlement before the war. And I think that a lot of that came from a mistaken view of how politics works in Russia. I think people felt that Russia was still a regime where a lot of these figures had more influence than they really do. And I think there was not enough of an understanding that Russia had become really a personalist dictatorship where their influence was increasingly minimal. Henry, your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I totally agree with what Ben has just said. But, but, but two more additions to that. I mean, the first is that the West, is, NATO has made clear it's not going to intervene militarily in Ukraine. It's not going to get involved with troops on the ground, with, with aircraft in the air, with missile defense systems. So that means the only real tool we have to punish Russia, if you like, to be involved in this war, to go as far as to say that, is through economic sanctions. That's really the only tool we have if we're not prepared to intervene militarily, as had all, all leaders from, from President Biden through across the Western world have said continually. The second thing I'd say is that if you want to uh, uh, cripple an economy like Russia's, going after oligarchs isn't actually that bad an idea. I mean, roughly the richest 500 individuals in Russia, so these are people with a net worth of more than $100 million. This is pre-invasion, let me just tell you the statistic. Controlled 40% of the country's entire household wealth. That's three times 
the global average in terms of elites controlling uh, uh, natural wealth. So if you if the idea is to cripple the economy, going after the oligarchs is quite smart. You can you can take out a huge chunk of GDP by going after not that many individuals. So in that sense, the the sanctions were a good idea. I completely agree with Ben though. The the theory that somehow the threat of these would have caused. Um, uh, oligarchs to speak to Putin and say, "Please don't do this." Oh my goodness! You know, the last thing you could do is to is to invade Ukraine. You're going to ruin my life. Completely misguided and 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 really really quite stupid uh, policy. Though I don't think that was the idea. I think this was about punishment. It was about degrading the Russian economy and also giving pause for thought for next time. Uh, and and to say to these people, look, if you're going to base your your economy not just in Russia, anywhere else in the world on theft, on corruption, on crony capitalism, and try to reinvest those proceeds overseas, you're going to come at a moment like this where you're going to lose everything. So, so what does it mean? How will the U.S. And, and EU leadership determine if this strategy has been has been successful, Henry? Well, I think we're already seeing that it is successful in terms of how the Russian economy has fared over the last three weeks. They're obviously in huge amounts of trouble. Um, they're obviously having to take quite drastic measures to try to uh, save their economy from rapid high inflation uh, and from uh, a huge depletion of foreign savings. You're seeing a huge amount of people try to leave the country, a massive brain drain, which is, of course, a, a medium to long-term sanction on that economy. So in that sense, uh, I think they can say, well, the sanctions are working. However, we haven't seen Putin step back from any potential uh, uh, escalations, with the, the use of um, uh, uh, certain types of weapons, the, the targeting of civilians. These are all red lines that were supposed to be held back by the sanctions. But the important thing to remember here is that we're not not all the sanctions weapons have been used yet. And that's the whole point of the sanctions regime vis-a-vis Russia in this war, is that there is always a next step for in case Putin were to step further again. And I think it's looking pretty clear that if he really does think he can drag this war out for, for weeks and weeks and months and months, his economy is not going to be able to uh, support that. And so he has a decision to make. Ben, this isn't the first time the U.S. has sanctioned people in another country. How did that strategy work against Iran and North Korea? It's really useful that you mentioned Iran and the large-scale sanctions placed on Iran previously made it the most sanctioned country in the world. And I think when trying to work out what the future of Russia now looks like under a sanctions regime that's now so severe it surpassed that uh, on Iran, I think there'll be a lot in common in which the sanctions on Iran were able to degrade the Iranian war machine, to destabilize uh, Iran, to put a lot of pressure on different parts of the Iranian economy, to bring Iran to the negotiating table, even to lead to a large proportion of the Iranian population, maybe 20, 25%, to often be in open revolt against the government, but they were never strong enough to actually crack or break the regime. And inside Iran, security elites and security... um, linked individuals grabbed an even greater share of a smaller pie. And I think that that's likely to be how Russia will develop over the years to come. Elizabeth Schimpfusel is a senior lecturer at Aston University and and argues the investigation into Russian oligarchs' money could open a Pandora's box. And she spoke with 1A producer Chris Remington. And obviously the global finance system has not the slightest interest to trace those accounts, make them more transparent, because, of course, if you start with the Russians, you don't know how far it will go. It might force others, too, to become more transparent. 
they've, they've got their money secured offshore and the sanctions itself, except for, well, some of their properties here and there, won't hurt them the slightest bit. Henry, what is the investigation into the assets of Russian elites illustrated about the interconnectedness of global finance? Well, it's certainly exposed a lot of uh, pretty uh, uh, unethical practices, um, lots of co- uh, complicity with uh, major high street banks, um, major uh, law firms, PR firms who've helped this money uh, be be hidden around the world, be stashed away in certain areas, and also, you know, in broad daylight, you know, you, you only have to walk through the centre of London or, or New York to see some of these properties that are now uh, blacklisted, but for years and years, uh, uh, governments were, were absolutely fine with Russian oligarchs uh, uh, owning them, travelling to them, uh, and, and you know, putting their kids through school uh, in them. I, the interconnectivity is, is a really important part here, and it comes back to what I said earlier, that, that we, for a while, the West really wanted to engage with Russia. They, we really wanted to have a relationship with them, seeing that as a, as a far better situation than, than turning a cold shoulder to them as we'd had in the Cold War. And that backfired effectively, that, that by integrating Russia into the global financial system, we did not make the Russian financial system more like the Western financial system. Uh, in many ways, perhaps it worked the other way around. And some of these practices uh, have bled into the, 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 the way in which Western companies, Western banks, certainly doing business with these individuals, have, have adapted their, their compliance procedures, their due diligence. They've come up with ways to, ha- to hide this money. I mean, let's not beat about the bush here. The old Russian oligarchs don't come to the Western banks and say, hey, I've got an idea, let's do this. They say, what can you do with this money? And the Western uh, banks facilitate that. So th- there is a reckoning going on right now, and, and it, I do think it will have an impact on other parts of the financial system. I'm not as negative uh, on this as Elizabeth, uh, though, though, of course, some banks will 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 dig in. Um, I, I, I think what, one thing I'd like to add as well is that you know a lot of the money that's now being seized is money that the Russian oligarchs have moved overseas. They're now fleeing back to Russia to try to protect what they have. And Mr. Putin has for many years been saying to oligarchs, please bring your money back to Russia. In fact, if you do, there will be amnesties. We can give you tax breaks on that money, trying to get cash back into Russia. What you'll see now, of course, is Putin is even stronger amongst those oligarchs because the only place in the world or one of the very few places in the world where their money is safe is back in Russia. So you're going to see these oligarchs fleeing back to Russia and you are very, very unlikely to see them try and try and uh, step out into the West uh, again for fear that, that they'll lose it all. That's Henry Foy with the Financial Times European diplomatic correspondent. He was previously the Moscow bureau chief. Also with us today, Ben Judah. He's a senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Europe Center and a foreign policy writer based in New York. Henry, Ben, thanks for speaking with us. Today's producer was Chris Remington. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm Jen White. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk more soon. This is 1A.